All right, good morning, everybody. I want to welcome all of you here today, especially if you happen to be new to Plum Creek. It's a fun day around here. I know a lot of us are looking forward to the fall festival later today, but I'm also excited to get into this morning's sermon. We are in the middle of a long journey called the gospel, and this journey takes us through the life and the ministry of Jesus. This morning, we're wrapping up a four-week series within the gospel, and the name of this series is called. It's about people who were called by God to do something significant. And we looked at some great stories over the last few weeks. We talked about John the Baptist and the baptism of Jesus. We covered the story where Jesus was tempted out in the wilderness. And then last week, we looked at the first miracle of Jesus when he turned water into wine. And today, the conclusion of this series is about Jesus calling his disciples. I want to start by reading that story from Matthew chapter 4. But before I do that, I want to share something with you. When I was younger, I had a hard time making sense of this story. Uh, If you've been around Plum Creek for a while, you know that I try to be open about the fact that sometimes I read the Bible and, and I find it a little strange or even confusing. And part of that is probably just me being slow. But I think there's something else going on here. I believe it can actually be a good thing when we struggle with Scripture because our questions can lead us to God. When we wrestle with our faith, that's when we're more likely to grow. And when we stop wrestling, it's easy to fall back into complacency. So here we go. Matthew chapter 4, starting with verse 18. It says, As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, called Peter, and his brother, Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once, they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother, John. They were in a boat with their father, Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Now, I've, I've heard that story ever since I was a kid, but can you imagine, can you understand why I might struggle with this? It, it just seems pretty extreme. Four fishermen meet this guy named Jesus, and they immediately drop everything to go follow him. Why would they do that? I mean, let's think of it in a modern context. Picture this. Let's say there's a local preacher, uh, maybe from Alexandria or Falmouth, and this guy is driving around one day, and he pulls into one of those neighborhoods where they're building a lot of houses right now. And let's say this preacher drives up to a house that's under construction, and he stops the car, and he walks over to the workers, and he says, hey, guys, I want to make you an offer. I'm starting a new ministry, and I want you to join me. We're going to change a lot of lives. And instead of building houses, you are going to build the kingdom of God. And then all of a sudden, these construction workers just drop their tools, leave their trucks and their jobs, and then they travel around with this preacher full time. Now, if I came to you and I said that story really happened, what would you say? You'd probably say, yeah, nice story, Doug, but I don't believe that's true. There's no way that happened. But if you did believe my story, 
you're probably thinking that these workers are out of their minds. Either that or the preacher has some weird power over people that's kind of spooky. And if that's what we'd say about this modern-day story, what do we do with these fishermen in Matthew chapter 4? Well, after wrestling with this on my own, I'll tell you where I've landed. I don't believe this story is fake. And I do think those fishermen were crazy, but crazy in a good way. I also believe that Jesus did have an amazing ability to influence other people, but at the same time, he never coerced anyone to do anything against their will. These men left their homes and their families and their careers by choice. They voluntarily made a decision to follow Jesus. But I'll tell you something else that I believe. When we read this story today, I believe we often make a big mistake. We walk away from Matthew chapter 4 saying, yeah, that's a good story, but man, I can't relate to these guys. What they did was so extreme, and I I don't think God expects me to do something like that. It's just irresponsible. And just like that, we distance ourselves from these fishermen. We sort of give ourselves a pass. But you know what? I heard this great quote not too long ago. The gospel is not just a story to be heard. It's a life to be lived. And that is so true. The word gospel means good news. It's the good news about Jesus. But it's not just a story. The gospel has the power to change your life. And that's what God wants. He wants us to go through this continual process of transformation. So let's dig a little deeper into this story. I'm going to make the case that God absolutely wants us to follow the example of Peter, Andrew, James, and John. But if that's true, we have to deal with the spontaneous decision they made. It seems a little crazy, so how do we handle that? Well, this is when it's very helpful to have more than one account of the life of Jesus. So far, we only read this story from the Gospel of Matthew. But remember, there are four books in the Bible that tell the story of Jesus. We also have Mark, Luke, and John. So we're going to combine those accounts and get a lot more details. And we're going to find that this decision was not as spontaneous as it seems. First of all, let's jump over to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. We're traveling back in time a little bit here. Uh, This is uh, back when John the Baptist is still preaching and teaching. This is almost a year before that scene beside the Sea of Galilee. And do you remember what God called John the Baptist to do? It was two phases, right? Phase one, pave the way for Jesus. And then phase two, get out of the way. So we'll pick up the story where John's time in the spotlight is almost over. John chapter 1, verse 35. It says, The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. And when he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Now, let's make sure we understand this. First, John the Baptist is over here with two of his disciples. And then Jesus walks by. John sees Jesus and he informs his disciples, look, this is the Lamb of God. This is the Messiah. Basically, John the Baptist is telling his disciples to go over to Jesus and That was his calling, right? Pave the way and then get out of the way. And so it happens. John's two disciples make the leap. 
They become followers of Jesus. And we have to ask now, who were these two disciples? Let's skip down to verse 40. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? Andrew is one of those fishermen from Matthew chapter 4. So who's the second disciple here? Well, we don't get a name in this passage, but many scholars believe the second disciple is a different John, the John who wrote this gospel. He's one of the original 12 disciples of Jesus, and he goes on to write not only this gospel, but four other books in the Bible, including the book of Revelation. And this theory makes sense to me because whenever John shows up in the story, he usually doesn't mention his own name. So what happens next? Well, let's read on. Verse 41. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother, Simon, Peter, and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is, the Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. Okay, so now we have Andrew, Peter, and most likely John going over to Jesus. And uh, it's also likely that John brought his brother, James, to Jesus. And if that's the case, all four of those fishermen met Jesus around nine months before he said, come follow me in Matthew 4. So think about this. What would these guys have witnessed during those nine months? They would have heard Jesus preaching and teaching. They would have seen miracles like the one where Jesus turned water into wine. You may remember from last week, there were disciples with Jesus at that wedding. So these men had plenty of evidence that Jesus was the Messiah they were looking for. But at this point, Peter, Andrew, James, and John had not yet left their old lives behind completely. Best we can tell, the four of them travel north up to Galilee, and they go back to that fishing business they shared together. And that's understandable, because while they were hanging out with Jesus, I'm I'm sure the bills started to pile up. But then, Jesus also goes up to Galilee, and that sets the stage for that dramatic encounter by the lake. So we're going to go back and read that story again, but this time, we're going to switch from Matthew over to the Gospel of Luke. And Luke writes about this from a different perspective. He gives us more details, especially about Peter. So let's check this out. Luke chapter 5, starting with verse 1. One day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and it's another name for the Sea of Galilee, the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from the shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. So that's already a different picture, isn't it? Jesus didn't walk up to the lake by himself. There was a whole crowd of people. Jesus was already a celebrity by this point. People followed him everywhere. But he needs a little space. So Jesus jumps into the boat that belongs to his friend, Peter, and he starts preaching to people on the shore. And when he's done, the story takes a very interesting turn. Verse 4, when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything, but because you say so, I will let down the nets. 
So there's a little tension between Peter and Jesus, isn't there? And we get that, right? Peter is tired and frustrated after working all night and catching nothing. I'm sure he's also feeling the pressure of paying some of those bills. But clearly, this wasn't a good time to fish, so they take a break. They had just finished cleaning their nets, and Jesus tells them to go back out again. I can picture what Peter's thinking here. You know, Jesus, you're a carpenter, and I respect that. You're a rabbi, and I respect that. But you know what? I don't ever tell you how to build a house, and I don't tell you what to preach. So listen, when it comes to fishing, I know what I'm doing. You do your thing, and I'll do my thing. But Peter doesn't say any of those things out loud. He just makes that one little comment. Master, we've worked hard all night, and we haven't caught anything. But notice the very next thing he says, but because you say so, I will let down the nets. In other words, Jesus, I've learned that I can trust you. I've learned that when you speak, I better listen. So Peter turns and he lowers the nets. And suddenly his muscles start to flex under a heavy weight and a smile breaks out over his face. But it's not long before he gets concerned. Verse 6 says, When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. And just like that, in an instant, Jesus takes care of nine months' worth of bills. He goes above and beyond what they actually need. Now earlier, I said that these fishermen give us an example to follow. And here's the first thing I want us to notice. Think about Peter, Andrew, James, and John working so hard all night long, and it's so frustrating because they don't have anything to show for it. Can you relate to that feeling? There have been many times in my life when I felt like that, including one time about a month ago. I was on a staff retreat with all the other ministers from Plum Creek, We went up to the north side of Cincinnati, and we spent time working on strategies and plans for the future. But later in the evening, we went over to Top Golf. And if you're not familiar with this place, Top Golf is like a driving range on steroids. They have more than 100 bays on multiple levels, and your group gets assigned to one of those bays, and you hit golf balls out to different targets. And each ball has a microchip that tracks how close you get to the target. You can see your scores up on the screen. Now, some of you know that golf is not one of my strengths. So going into that activity, I was not expecting to do well. But when we started that first game, I was hitting the ball pretty well. In fact, for one shining moment, I was actually winning. I took a picture so I could remember that moment forever. You see me up there right above Jared? That actually happened. But a few minutes later, reality set in. Jared did what Jared does with a golf club, and he started crushing his drives. He was hitting into the net on the far, far side of the range. As for me, I started swinging harder and harder, and I got worse and worse. My old slice came back. I hit several balls into the side of the net for no points. And on other drives, I topped the ball and 
It just dribbled to the ground right in front of us. And in the last game we played, I made it to the bottom of the scoreboard. And somehow I forgot to take a picture that time. (laughs) But have you ever felt like that? You're just working your tail off and you're trying so hard and it doesn't seem like you're making any progress at all. Maybe your career has felt like that. Or, or maybe it's been relationships for you. You've put so much effort into friendships or your marriage or your relationship with your kids and it's just not working out. Or maybe you've been trying to live up to some standard, trying to be the person you're supposed to be and you just can't ever seem to get there. For all of us who have ever felt like that, Let's go back to Peter. What can we learn from his example? Well, here's what Peter challenges me to do. Stop trying hard in the wrong direction and start trusting Jesus in the right direction. You see, at any given moment, Jesus is leading us. He's calling us. He's directing us. And then we decide how to respond. Will we listen to him or will we keep doing things our way? Will we trust him enough to do what he says Or will we keep trusting in ourselves? You know, the best thing we can do is get a clear idea of how Jesus is calling us, what he's telling us to do right now, and then just do what he says. Amazing things can happen when we follow his calling, when we just listen and obey. But let's get back to our story. Peter, Andrew, James, and John, they pull in this miraculous catch of fish. And then what's their reaction? You would think these fishermen would be laughing and yelling and giving each other high fives, but it's not like that. Look at Peter. He finally sees Jesus for who he really is. Verse 8, when Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. You see, by this point, Peter probably did believe that Jesus was the Messiah, but this is a new revelation. Peter realizes that he is in the presence of God himself, and he is terrified. And you know, that's consistent with what we see throughout the Bible. Whenever someone comes near to the presence of God, the response is fear. For example, When the prophet Isaiah saw the Lord, he cried out, Woe is me! I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips. And Peter's response is similar, isn't it? He is well aware that he has no right to enter God's presence. He's not close to being pure enough. He's a sinner. And when a sinner faces God, you're facing judgment. See, the truth is that response of fear, it's completely appropriate. All of us are sinful, like Peter was sinful. And we should have a healthy fear of God. Proverbs 9, verse 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Did you hear about that woman in the news a few weeks ago? She was up at the Bronx Zoo. And she decided to climb into the lion enclosure and dance and taunt this lion that was just a few feet away from her. And then she posted that moment on social media and bragged about how brave she is. Well, I wouldn't call her brave. I'd call her delusional. And it's the same with us. If we don't have an appropriate fear of a holy God, then we're delusional too. But Peter gets it. 
That's why he says, go away from me, Lord. And I'm so thankful that this story doesn't end with Jesus walking away. Instead, Jesus says something that gives hope to all of us. Verse 10, then Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. Now look at those first three words, don't be afraid. Do you know what that means? Remember, it was completely appropriate for Peter to be afraid in the presence of God. He was sinful, and God is holy. But listen, when Jesus tells Peter, don't be afraid, that's the equivalent of saying, Peter, it's okay. Your sins don't have to keep you from me. Jesus offered forgiveness to Peter, just like he offers forgiveness to all of us. But it goes beyond that, doesn't it? Jesus also says, Peter, I'm about to use you in a powerful way. You're going to fish for people. I'm going to use you to transform lives and and bring others into God's kingdom. This is so cool. Peter gives us another great example here. On the one hand, it's good to admit that we don't deserve to be chosen by God. But on the other hand, we can believe that Jesus says, I choose you anyway. Many of us here have a past that we're not proud of. And some of us feel like we will never be free of the things we've done. Maybe you feel like you've been disqualified. You're saying, there's no way that God would ever choose me. There's no way he'd call me to do something significant. But then there's Peter, a sinful man. And God says, Peter, I know about all that, and I choose you anyway. Some of you know where things go from here. You know that Peter is not done messing up. He's got some serious low points in his future. But even then, God doesn't give up on him. Eventually, Peter steps into this huge calling to be a key leader in the early church. But back on this day, beside the the Sea of Galilee, Peter reached a turning point, a major turning point in his life. Luke 5 verse 11 tells us what happened. So, They pulled their boats up on the shore, left everything, and followed him. So you see, don't you? This wasn't some snap decision. It's not at all like my fake story of the preacher and the construction workers. This was the culmination of a nine-month process. Over time, these men came to realize who Jesus was, and they decided following him was the only thing that made sense. And in that way, Peter and the disciples give us one more example. They went through three stages, didn't they? Investigate, believe, and follow. And God calls us to go through that same process. It starts with investigation. And it's okay to take some time to get to know Jesus. Seek him. Look for the signs that tell you he really is who the Bible says he is. But then at some point, you look at all the evidence and you decide to believe That's what the disciples did in John chapter 2. We read that last week. They saw Jesus turn water into wine, and because of what they saw, the disciples believed in him. Even today, we have so much evidence that gives us reason to believe in Jesus. And if you're looking for some, let us know. We'd be glad to point you in the right direction. But then once you believe, your part is not over. You have to actually take a step and follow him. And listen, there is no scenario where you get to follow Jesus and keep living the exact same life you were living before. 
there is a cost to following Jesus. He said that himself. In Luke 14, he says, in the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. That verse is one that a lot of American Christians would rather avoid. In our culture, a lot of people want to call themselves Christians without actually following Jesus. They want to get a lot from him and only sacrifice a little. But what's the example of Peter, Andrew, James, and John? They left everything. They gave up everything. And their decision tells us a few things about the call of Jesus. First, this call takes precedence over all family ties and loyalties. No other person, no other thing can come before him. Second, the call of Jesus takes precedence over concern for your physical well-being. Jesus never told us that following him means you'll always be happy and healthy and rich. In fact, he told us to expect trouble. Across the world, persecution is common for genuine Christians. There's a third thing that we see. The call of Jesus requires a radical reordering of your values and priorities. All around us, the normal pattern is to think of yourself first. What will make me happy? How can I be successful? What will make me feel significant or fulfilled? But Jesus says, no, you have to let go of all of those things. Just trust me to give you what you need. So in the end, I would still say the disciples' decision to follow Jesus was extreme. They made a radical choice to put their lives completely into the hands of Jesus. Man, when I think about everything these men gave up, I kind of want to go to them and ask, so guys, was it worth it? I imagine having a conversation with these disciples at the end of their lives, right before they died. As I thought about it, I am 100% convinced that not a single one of them would say, you know, I really regret following Jesus. I wish I had stayed back there in Galilee just fishing my days away. And hey, don't get me wrong. It is a noble thing to find a good job and keep working hard all the way up to retirement. But it's not a good thing to ignore the call of Christ. And many times, he calls us to stay put and follow him where we already live. He calls us to make a difference in our homes, in our jobs, in our neighborhoods. The point is, wherever Jesus leads you, you will not regret following him. Those original disciples, they, they had a difficult life, no doubt about it. But their lives were also fulfilling and never boring. And then when this life was over, they got to claim the promise of resurrection. They get to live with Jesus forever. They're with Jesus right now. And if those disciples could speak to us today, I know what they'd say. The call of Jesus is costly, but it's worth it. So as we wrap up this sermon and this whole series, I want to go back to that three-part process. Investigate, believe, and follow. Do you know where you are in that process? If you're here and you're still investigating and looking into who Jesus is, that's awesome. I encourage you to come back every Sunday. Keep seeking Him. We start a new chapter of the gospel next week. It's called No Ordinary Man. And we're going to walk through some of the most dramatic events in the life of Jesus. So keep coming. Keep asking questions. Keep seeking. But it may be that you've moved past that first part 
and you're saying, Jesus, I do believe in you. I choose to trust you. And whatever you tell me to do, I'm going to do it. And then you know what comes next, right? Jesus actually will tell you to do something. And then that's when you take the step. You follow him. So investigate, believe, follow. And I have to point out something here. You don't go through this three-part process just one time, and that's the end of it. The reality is this is a cycle that you go through over and over again. We have to keep investigating. We go to Scripture. We learn more of who Jesus is, and we ask Him, how are you calling me right now? And then we have to commit to Jesus on a regular basis and say, I still believe in you. And then from there, He always calls us to take yet another step to follow Him. This process will continue all the way to the end of this life until we get to be with Jesus for eternity. So again, where are you in this process? I'm pretty confident that a lot of us here are in that third part. We're at the point where it is time to take a step and follow Him. And to be honest, this is why I preach. This is what I pray about every week when I'm working on a sermon. Because here's the deal. I'm not here to stand up and give a talk that hopefully holds your attention for about 35 minutes. And I'm not here just to give you something to think about and maybe make you feel convicted before you go back to your normal life. I'm here to share the Word of God with all of you and with myself. So I'm always praying that God will speak to us and change us, transform us, so that we'll become who He wants us to be. If we're not actually changing, then something's not right. So let me ask you, is God speaking to you right now? Is Jesus calling you to follow him in some way? I have no doubt, absolutely no doubt that he is. Back in the first week of this series, I challenged all of us, including myself, to get specific about God's calling. We all had a blank to fill in. I have been called by God to, and then you fill in the blank. And I said that it might seem difficult to know what goes into that blank. But I also said that God has spelled out His calling pretty clearly in His Word. I gave you several categories that represent different ways that God may call us, and I've listed them again in your note sheet. All of these commands come straight from Scripture. Love God above everything else and everyone else. Love your neighbor as yourself. Become a follower or a disciple of Jesus. And that's when you believe in Him, you confess Him as, you, as your Lord, you repent or turn away from your old life, and then you're baptized into a new life in Christ. Then for some of us, we're at that step where Jesus calls us to make more disciples. And if you were here three weeks ago, and you did fill in that blank, I want to follow up and ask you, did you do it? Did you take the step? Because like we said, being willing to take the step is very different than actually taking the step. And if you weren't here three weeks ago, I want to include you in this challenge. The gospel is not just a story to be told. It's a life to be lived. So identify that step and then take it. Make the radical decision to follow Jesus. It's costly, but it is worth it. It's so worth it. 
Let's pray. Father, I know that we have a tendency to hold on to things. And I know that uh, you're always telling us to let go. And that can be difficult. It can be scary. Some of the things that we hold on to, they're, they're trivial. And other things are pretty important. But God, I know it comes down to trust. Can we trust that if we let go, that you're going to provide what we need? That it will actually be better for those around us, for, for this life, for whatever happens, in trusting ourselves to you, aligning ourselves with your will, taking the step wherever you lead us, just the best thing all the way around. But help us, Lord, to believe that all the way to our core. And I pray for all of us here today that we'll identify that step and then take it. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.